We are in Mark chapter 12. Uh, we are stepping through this gospel of Mark, uh, seeing what we can see and, and, and observing this unexpected Savior in Jesus Christ as it is presented to us here in Mark's gospel. We are in the middle of Holy Week, so to speak. We are in Mark's uh, presentation of Holy Week, in which will eventually culminate in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. That's coming very soon. This is the third day of it. Jesus is in the temple, and he has been teaching and responding to a laundry list of questions Uh, That's what we looked at last week. Jesus has been uh, just uh, sort of brought through the ringer, so to speak, by uh, so many different factions of religious elites as they've questioned him about so many different things. We looked at that about his authority and his loyalty to the government and what he believes about the resurrection and all sorts of things. And he has answered all of these questions perfectly. That's what we saw last week, that the answer to all of the questions is himself. He is the answer to them all, and such is why he says that at the end of that passage, if you look in verses 35 through 37, where he comes out and is, he questions the questioners, and he affirms his deity and sovereignty as the Lord of all, but also the Son of David. But this moment that we get to here in verse 38 is actually a significant moment. It's a moment in which actually Jesus is going to break ties with sort of this uh, questioning with the religious religious officials. Uh, This scene represents a seismic shift in the narratives of Jesus' life. Uh, Especially because for the remainder of the gospel, all of the teachings, the formal teachings that are going to happen, are going to be only with the disciples. Only with the apostles. No more public discourse. No more sort of uh, entertaining these sort of open air spiritual discussions, so to speak, that he has uh, so far uh, been engaged in. Here now, it's uh, from this point forward, Jesus' ministry is with his apostles. With those who were closest to him. And this is very significant because Jesus knows what's coming. <laughs> he knows what's about to happen in a few days. He knows this incredible moment is going to happen when he is going to be taken from this world. And the apostles are going to be the voices of truth. They are going to be the voices of this gospel, of this kingdom that Jesus has been so far uh, engaging and pressing into his, his disciples' minds. They are going to be the messengers of that kingdom. And so Jesus here is now shifting his focus to enriching and to encouraging his apostles' resolve because a day was going to come when there would be so much unrest, so much scandal, so much uh, anxiety over the fact that their teacher was gone, or their teacher was leaving them. And all that begins here with this rather innocuous story of a widow giving two small coins in the temple. But this scene at the end of Mark is, I think, so important and so significant. Because actually, it gives us the clearest example in all of Mark's writing. And I would say in almost all of the gospel writing, it's the most succinct version of exactly what Jesus thinks about his religious opponents. If you want to know what his perspective is on those who have so far opposed him and questioned him and brought him through so many different religious inquiries, here you have it. 
Here's Jesus' thoughts of those who were coming up against him. With his, uh, here's Jesus' frustration, so to speak, made explicit for us. And just like the, the blind man from Bethesda. Remember that from chapter 8? The blind man who uh, at first saw trees, uh, saw men as, as they were trees walking. And then he is made to see. He was a living parable of Jesus' disciples. Here, this widow is similarly a living parable. A living object lesson for what he was trying to show his apostles about these religious elitists. A living parable of the type of faith that Jesus is looking for. And that's what we're going to see here in two little scenes, two little conversations with Jesus and his apostles. First, look at verse 38 through 40. Here we have the warning. Look at it again. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. I mentioned last week, if you remember, uh, that scene with the scribe just previously Where the scribe comes to Jesus and asks him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of all? And that scene is nonetheless important. But so many people, in fact, think that that scene represents a scribe who is authentic. Who's authentic in his faith and his questioning and his inquiry with Jesus. And I mentioned last week that I actually don't think that that's necessarily the case. Even though that's the prevailing interpretation, the common notion is that that this lawyer... Who has been so far listening to all the previous questions. As it says in verse 28. Then one of the scribes. If you look at it 12, 28. One of the scribes came. Having heard them reasoning together. He's heard all of the previous questions. And conversations and answers that Jesus gave. That somehow the scribe knew something different than his peers. And he represents some sort of genuine faith. But I I actually don't think that that's what was happening. I actually think that when Jesus says that he is not far from the kingdom in verse 34, that that's not a good thing. Yeah, he's not far, but he's not in the kingdom. He doesn't have genuine faith. Your entrance into the kingdom of God is not hinged on you being close enough. Close enough will not cut it. This is not a commendation of his faith. I actually think it's a condemnation of the faith that he still lacks. Which I think is what he gets to right here. Can you imagine Jesus here teaching, talking with all of these religious groups. And then all of a sudden he blurts out, beware of the scribes. Not something he would likely say about a group that he just approved. He's obviously making sure, making clear exactly what he thinks about these groups who have missed the mark, who have forgotten, who have neglected the true religion of the kingdom of God. This is why I think he comes right out here and utters this warning. Beware of the scribes. Beware of these who have perverted the faith. That my God, my Father, has so longed for in God's people. 
Just think about it again. Telling your audience to be on their guard, to watch out, to be careful, be cautious about this particular group. That's not something you would say if you were affirming what they were doing and saying. He's obviously wanting to make sure that they knew that what they were promoting, the religion of the scribes, the religion of the Pharisees, was not measuring up. It wasn't cutting it. It was close, but not close enough. It wasn't far from the kingdom, but it wasn't the religion of God's kingdom. Such is why he utters this incredibly incisive warning. A warning to beware of them. Listen again to these words. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Does it sound like he thinks that they're genuine in their religion? Does it sound like he believes that the scribes and the Pharisees and all of these lawyers who have been focusing on the law, does does it sound like he approves of how they have interpreted and applied it? Not likely. He's actually showing them that that they have missed the mark completely. And actually, if you want a longer version of this diatribe, this warning, go to Matthew 23. There for 30 odd verses he gives woes. All these woes to the the scribes and the Pharisees. And he actually calls them hypocrites. Actually go to to Matthew 23. I just want to read one of these verses. Matthew 23 is an astounding chapter. It is so blunt. If you want to see Jesus at his blunt. At his most blunt. Read Matthew 23. He doesn't. Beat around the bush and what he thinks about these uh, religious groups here. In fact, he's very clear. He's very clear that they aren't true followers of Jehovah, of the Lord. Over and over again, he calls them hypocrites. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. He calls them hypocrites over and over again. Hypocrites is actually, a, the, the Greek word is actually a derivative from Greek Acting, play acting, drama. If you were an actor on a theater stage in this day and age, you were called a hypocrite. Because why? You were pretending to be someone that you are not. Just like in these days when you would put on a mask, so to speak, and try and pretend that you are someone else for the the theatrics of the stage. These Religious teachers, scribes, lawyers were pretending, were play-acting their religiosity. 
They were putting on self-righteous masks, so to speak. And they were pretending that they were spiritual when they were not. Which, by the way, leads me, remember a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the, the fig tree? It had lots of leaves, but no fruit. It pretended it had abundant harvest, but when Jesus got to it, it was nothing but leaves. Leafy, play-acting religion. That pretends that it has lots of spiritual fruit. And it's nothing but leaves. It's nothing but a mask. It's nothing but pretend. Make-believe. These are make-believe religious teachers. Who don't have what they pretend to have. And why do they do it? Look at verse 5. Matthew 23, 5. All their works, Jesus says, they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They do things to be seen. They do things to be noticed. They want to be seen by all. As authorities, as those who deserve respect and honor. This entire scene, if you go back to our text, Matthew 12, it's a disapproval of these who were given the truth of God. And instead of nurturing it and nourishing those by it, they corrupted it. They perverted it. Jesus here is disapproving. He's dismissing In a lot of ways. Those who were questioning him. And these are those. These scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Are those who are plotting against him. You want to talk about stoking the fire. (laughs) Call them hypocrites. (laughs) The very ones who were plotting to destroy him. The very ones who were conspiring with other political uh, groups and factions. To try and kill him. And Jesus has been. Outright and clear and explicit in saying, yeah, go ahead. Remember in verse 7 and 8 where he tells the story of the wicked vineyard dressers who actually, the wicked vine dressers who actually take the vineyard owner's son and take him out and kill him. Here he's making it explicit that this is me. This is about what you are about to do to me. I am the vineyard's owner's son. He's reprimanding these scribes and Pharisees because they had failed in what they had been given. The religion of Jehovah. The religion of God's communion with man. And instead of making it to where they could see all the more this incredible marvel at the fact that the creator of all the universe would want to dwell with them. Would want to commune with man. They have perverted religion into something where they gain. Where they benefit from. They were not after the promotion of true religion. They were after the promotion of their own reputation. They wanted to be seen. Remember where it says they go around in long robes and they love greetings. They love to be seen in the marketplaces and on the streets. And be called rabbi, teacher, authority. It's like trying to get a doctorate just to be called a doctor. It's like getting a title or a rank. These scribes were flashy and showy in their piety. Going around in long robes so people would notice them. Look at how religious that guy is. They wanted to be distinguished. They wanted, as it says there in verse 
39, the best seats in the synagogues and the best seats at the feasts. They wanted to be the elite of the elite in the upper echelon of society. And Jesus says they devour widows' houses. This, I think, is one of the most cutting remarks that Jesus says. You see, uh, these teachers of the law in this day and age, they did not receive any sort of income. All that they received to uh, have uh, sustenance in their lives was by voluntary contributions. By temple patrons or what have you. Here's a contribution to uh, have your life sustained. And so by this statement, Jesus is revealing the awful reality that many of these so-called devout lawyers had actually resorted into exploiting those that were giving to them by actually trying to guilt trip them into giving more. And in fact, so far and so callous were they that they were actually robbing widows of their meekly, meager livelihoods in order to fill their own pockets. They're taking from those who need it most in order to make themselves live lavishly. To keep up the pretenses. To keep up the charade. To keep up the act. Because they were hypocrites, remember? <laughs> And all of this they were doing in a facade of devotion and faithfulness and religion and devoutness to the Lord's word. Here we are. Look at how spiritual we are. Look at how faithful we are. And this is why Jesus is so frustrated with them because they should have known the truth. Remember, I'm going back and forth, but remember at the end of verse or the end of chapter 11 where they questioned him, where do you get this authority? And he questions them. And at the end he says, neither will I tell you uh, by what authority I do these things. Because remember they said, we don't know. We don't know the answer. Remember, they did know. They just didn't want to admit it. They knew the truth. But they didn't want to admit it because it meant the ruining of the lives that they had become to be addicted to. Here Jesus Is exposing them. They aren't far from the kingdom. But they aren't in it. The religion that they had. Was not measuring up. Their genuineness. Their authenticity. Was genuine only. In so far as it got them something in return. They wanted to be known as genuine. As authentic. As religious. And that's what they wanted to hear. And they wanted everyone to see how pious they were. How religious they were. As it says there. Verse 40. They devour widows houses. And for a pretense. Make long prayers. Lofty eloquent prayers. That seem really spiritual. But doing pious deeds. To show off your piety. Nullifies any sort of pious motivation. In those deeds. (laughs) Doing something religious so people see how religious you are nullifies that act of religion. If you're doing something to be seen by men to get their recognition and their praise and their acclamation and their attention. You're doing it for an ulterior motive. Such as what these scribes were doing with the religion of God. And the warning I think is true for us too. It's true for me. 
How often do you do something in church to get noticed? To be seen. To be seen by other men. To be seen by other churchgoers. Look at how devout that person is. What is your motive when you come across the threshold to church? Look at people. Uh, Look at me. Look at how faithful I am. How often are we guilty of desiring the best seats and the best places to get attention and credit? This is something I have to fight all the time. Doing things not to get noticed, but doing them because I love Jesus. And I just want other people to love Jesus. What's your motivation in your Christian life? What is motivating you? In your devotional life with God. These words from Jesus cut to the heart. And they reveal I think the most present concern in Jesus' earthly ministry. Let me just read you that verse uh, from Mark chapter 2. If you want the clearest view of Jesus' ministry. Mark 2.17 He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Just like these scribes, they think that they are well and healthy and whole. And Jesus is here outright saying, I have nothing to do with you. Because I have nothing to do with those who are well. I have come for those who are sick. For those who know that they aren't cutting it. That they aren't making it. That they aren't measuring up. Those are the ones who I have come for. He has come for the sick. And those who know that they are sick. It's a warning. But also watch. Look at the witness. The witness of this text. Look at verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. Her whole livelihood. What a stark contrast between the warning that he has just given. And what Jesus here witnesses. This widow giving two mites in the treasury. What amazes me about this scene is the fact that we would have never known about this widow. Except for Jesus pointing her out. Except for Jesus making sure to draw attention to her. We would have never remembered her. We would have never known about her. But he points her out. And he leads him to make this profound teaching here with his apostles. All the previous interactions, by the way, they've been going on in the court of the Gentiles in the temple. So the temple was segregated, so to speak, by different courts, by different rooms almost. They'd been in the court of the Gentiles teaching and talking and questioning and interacting with all of these different religious groups. And here, 
they move into the court of the women, which is where there were big boxes, houses, uh, so to speak, where you could put in offerings. Put in your offerings as you go into the temple. And here Jesus is washing. He's looking at these who are there that day giving. Notice in verse 41 again. Just notice those two words that Jesus sat and he saw. He is consciously looking at those who were coming in the temple that day. Attentively watching what they were doing and how they were giving. And giving to the temple. He's perceiving their mood and their motivation. And he observes this one poor widow. Who came and threw in two mites. The smallest Roman coins in circulation that day. About one sixty-fourth of a day's wage in that day. Smallest of the small offerings you could ever give. She puts it in that offering box. And it is precisely this poor widow. Who gets the attention by Jesus. Who is making such a profound statement by her offering. That Jesus calls his disciples to him. And teaches them. Notice it says in verse 43. He called his disciples to himself. Come look. You have to pay attention to this. You have to see what just happened. You have to notice what just occurred. I highly doubt no one else noticed this. I highly doubt no one else looked at this poor widow and said or thought, look at the faith that she just displayed. And Jesus is bringing our attention to it because that's precisely the point. She wasn't there to get attention. Unlike the scribes who, as it says, for a pretense make long prayers, for a show, for recognition, for men's applause and acclaim. They make long prayers. They do devout things. This poor widow wanted to come and just come to the temple. No pretense, no show, no hypocritical, no play acting motives. She came not looking for acclaim or applause. She came just bringing her gift. She came not for recognition or attention. She came, she didn't even want notoriety for the quote enormous gift that she was giving. Because it wasn't enormous. And yet Jesus says, she has given more. I imagine some of Jesus' own apostles were quite flabbergasted by Jesus' statement. She gave more? How, what are you talking about, Jesus? I saw a person give a $10,000 check in there. That's way more than two mites. And Jesus is saying, she gave all that she had. Other temple patrons that day, they gave chump chains. They just gave out of their pockets, what out of their abundance, out of their surplus. And she gave everything that she had. In monetary value, her gift was not enormous. But in spiritual value, her gift was gargantuan. Because it was all that she had. Every part of her was her sacrifice. Every part of her was her offering. She gave. She wasn't looking for attention. No one else noticed her except for Jesus. 
And yet, by her throwing in these two minuscule coins, these two mites, it almost acted like a death knell to all of the haughty spiritualism that was on display by the scribes. She was doing it out of faith. In an almost direct opposition to the prideful religion of the lawyers, this poor widow just gave because of her devoutness, because of her faith. Whereas the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they pretended to have religion in abundance. She had faith. She bore fruit with all that she had. This poor widow had the smallest piece of fruit one could imagine. And yet Jesus affirms that she has put in more. She gave more because she gave all. And in that sense, she is a witness to exactly what Jesus has everywhere been looking to inspire. And been everywhere been teaching. Faith alone. Faith alone in me. Faith alone in what my word says and what my God has promised. And what your father has promised in his word. Faith alone is what matters. Is what counts in the end. This is what has always been the case. Jesus is looking for faith that lies prostrate and desperate at the foot of his cross. And owes everything to that cross. He's looking for that. Faith that lies completely on its own. Knowing that it has nothing to offer. And everything to accept. We come with empty hands. We come with hearts that may be weighed down and heavy, but we come with empty hands knowing that when we come to the sanctuary, we are going to be filled by God's word. That is faith. Knowing that our offerings are meager. They are piddling. They are nothing but two mites. We come not looking for pretense, not looking for promotions, not looking for uh, the acclamation of our ranks and our titles and our devoutness and our spirituality. We come knowing that we are desperate, that we are poor, sick sinners who are desperate for Jesus' grace. Who are desperate for Jesus and his forgiveness. So we have to, I have to ask you again, what moves you to come to church? What inspires you? What drives you for what you do for the Lord? Is it credit? Is it acclaim? Is it notoriety? Is it attention? Or is it because you love Jesus? Is it the simple, humble faith? That his way is better. That Jesus' way is better than any other way. That Jesus' truth is more true than any other truth in the world. Is it the humble, simplistic faith that owes everything to God? Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to him I owe. That's the simplicity of faith. That I think was on display by this poor widow. That I would rightly say ought to be on display by all of us. And 
Don't think that I'm not preaching to myself. (laughs) I think preachers most of all need this message. What are you doing as you step behind a lectern and open the word? Are you seeking to fill your own pockets? Are you seeking to fill empty hearts? Are you seeking to promote the religion that saves sinners because sinners are all that you are? Or, or are you trying to make people see how smart you are and how, uh, how uh, attentive and religious you are? The same message is for all of us here in this room. We are nothing but poor widows who are desperate for a holy God to invite us into communion with Him. And guess what? He has. That's the good news. And the good news I want to leave you with is this. Is that this simple, humble faith, it gets Jesus' attention. God notices your simple, humble faith. The faithfulness that keeps pressing forward, even when no one else is watching, that keeps pressing into the truth, keeps sharing God's word, that keeps doing what it should be doing because it is true and right and good, regardless of how many people notice and see or care. Jesus notices. Jesus sees that. And that is reward enough in itself. Jesus sees you. And he sees your faith. Let us pray.